Rehydrate, the season we will be reading and talking about Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. This is book one of the Wayfarer series, and this is season two, episode one of the Rehydrate podcast. Uh, the title of the episode is The Tunnelers. We'll be reading and talking about chapters one through seven. Like most groups of people, we, the hosts, have diverse backgrounds in fiction to give you a sense of how we've experienced fiction. We'll go around and mention a favorite author and the last book that we've read not connected to this podcast. I'm Jim, and I like Jorge Luis Borges. He's a speculative fiction author, some say maybe one of the first sci-fi authors, and he worked in the 50s. But the last book I read was The Arrow of God by Chinua Achebe. It's about an Igbo priest dealing with colonialism in the 19th century in Nigeria. Hi, I'm Dan. I have not read any of this series up until this book. Not a huge reader. So the last book I read was Death's End by Liu Xixin. <laughs> Wait, that's connected to the series, isn't it? Yes. That, that's the <laughs> book I read. <laughs> <laughs> what was the book you read before that? Uh, it was also. <laughs> the, the Hi, I'm Tim. A recent favorite author has been Joe Abercrombie, who's a fantasy author, kind of a dark fantasy author. Um, his most famous work is the First Law Trilogy. I tend to read a bit more fantasy than sci-fi. And then the most recent book I read not connected to this is uh, The Monster Baru Cormorant by Seth Dickinson, which is the second book in the Masquerade series. This is Amin. I tend to read more nonfiction than fiction. The last book I read not related to this was Better Buses, Better Cities, How to Plan, Run, and Win the Fight for Effective Transit by Stephen Higgishide. I guess that's how you say So in these chapters, it starts with Rosemary taking the D-Pod, which is a pod for deep space travel, to the Wayfarer, the ship where she has a new job. On the Wayfarer, Corbin, an algaeist, a person who is apparently a technician who is assigned to grow algae, for reasons we'll talk about later, complains to Ashby, the captain, about the incoming new hire, which is Rosemary. And then Rosemary arrives, Corbin starts to onboard her, and then he bails when another crew member, Sissix, gives him an out because he didn't really want to do that in the first place. Later, the captain, Ashby, has a talk with his boss, Yoshi, who hints at a bigger opportunity for them. And Rosemary meets Dr. Chef and has dinner with the crew. Later, we see a conversation between Jenks, seems to be some sort of software technician, and Lovey, the ship's AI. And they have a mildly disturbing talk about Lovey hypothetically having a body. Kizzy, the hardware technician, explains to Rosemary what the Wayfarer actually does which are blind punches, the creation of wormholes in the universe. And then in the next chapter, the crew actually does the punch. Dan, do you want to talk about the characters? Yeah, so like we mentioned earlier, that we're all into this series, and they kind of throw a lot of new characters at you. So I want to just kind of level set of who seem to be the main characters and a little bit of background on them. So like in the summary, we have Rosemary Harper, who is the new crewmate from Mars, and she seems to be more of an administrator. Corbin seems to have some issue with her being uh, brand new and, and and that kind of stuff. And she also has some backstory that she's potentially hiding that we'll presumably come up later in the book. 
Then we have Ashby Santoso, captain of the ship, descended from humans. Uh, there seems to be maybe Earth isn't around anymore. And so it seems like both Corbin and Ashby are from Earth originally, but have uh, evolved differently. There's not a lot in his character that I've found so far, but he seems competent and the crew seems to like him, but he definitely is like longing for bigger things uh, based off his conversation. Then we have Corbin, who is uh, an algaeist, also descended from humans, seems arrogant and stuck up and doesn't like that they're bringing on a fresh crew member. We have Sissix, who is the navigator. There's a race called the Andrisk. Seems friendly. I don't really know much more. We have Lovelace or Levy, the computer AI. And then we have Kizzy Shao, who is the called Mech Tech, I think human, and seems disorganized, but kind of one of those engineers who is like really disorganized, but really competent at their job and like doesn't rely on quote unquote technology. It's really like a Scotty type character. And then we have Jenks, who is a computer tech, maybe human, but they talk about maybe he was altered, the genes altered or something to make him shorter for some reason, but he seems to not agree with that. I don't know what's going on there. We have Dr. Chef, who is crew support, is a race called the Grum, and cooks meals, takes care of sick bay, that kind of thing. Seems super friendly. Everyone seems to like him. And then you have Ohan, who is a cyanate pair. Seems like a race that kind of melds with a virus that gives them sort of fourth dimensional thinking powers somehow and refers to themselves as them and seems really sickly, I guess. They had to last Rosemary with radiation or cleanse herself of some virus that she potentially had that might have harmed her, but seems really integral to the work they do creating the wormholes. Let's talk about Rosemary. Like, as Dan said, she has a new identity that she bought at great expense and is starting a new life. There was a part where she hints at she doesn't really think she did something that was actually wrong, and a lot of people turned on her. She also talks about her parents being rich, and she lies about it, about having means. Tries to really downplay her her background. So yeah, I'm assuming it's something to do with maybe her parents financed some illegal activity or some like immoral activity or something. That's kind of what I assumed. And like maybe her family is notorious for those kind of activities, and then she's trying to get out of that reputation. That's what that I got out of it. Yeah. I, was kind of, I kind of agree. She's trying to distance herself from her family. I don't know if her family's a crime family or just, I don't know. I thought the same thing, that it had something to do with her family. And then the conclusion I drew is that apparently the Wayfarer didn't do a really thorough background check on her. It's not like they called her references or anything like that. Um, <laughs> well, maybe it's a really good idea. They mentioned that she had her, like her wrist thing, you know, whatever the, the identifier thing in her wrist, you know, replaced. So I get the impression that the reason maybe they didn't do like great background checks is their confidence in the implanted ID is absolute. And that's why it was such a big deal that she was able to get that, which unless you're super rich, I don't think you'd get. And also I thought it was odd now that Amin mentions it. Do you think a job like that is really necessary? I mean, it seems like it's necessary to kind of level up the jobs they can take on, right? I mean, one of the things that I thought was, was interesting about the book is how commonplace that wormholes are. <laughs> we always think of them as like pretty fantastical. They're like, oh, it's just a job. You know, they're just make, doing some wormhole stuff. They just want to make bigger ones or, you know, kind of take on bigger jobs. So they need someone to kind of take care of the mundane paperwork and the captain doesn't seem to want to deal with it or doesn't have time to deal with it. Who knows? Maybe this is part of make work programs or something that, you know, that go on with these, these ships and she's just... That was my thing as well. If you have a sophisticated AI like Lovey, why couldn't all of the paperwork, the logging, the tracking, inventory, whatever it is, why couldn't all of that be automated much more readily than having someone sit down with a, with a pad of paper and a calculator or whatever the job ends up being? It, it seems given how advanced Lovey is, that there should be opportunities to 
not need a full-time position, but also I think all of us having worked in bureaucratic institutions understand that sometimes efficiency is not the goal. How do you bring new blood into the fold? Yeah, it might be outside the scope of like that programming of the AI too, right? Because like, I think there's also mention of that role having to do some kind of diplomacy or at least talking to other, other races. And that, that's why she had to have all that training of how to interact with other races, how to speak other languages. So maybe the AI just isn't, isn't sophisticated enough to deal with all that. So one thing that struck me like when I first started reading it, it was kind of like the overwhelming number of technology terms that are kind of just thrown in. They do a lot of in-world terminology. And it's kind of overwhelming, I think, uh, when, I, when I first started reading it. It, it, almost distracting it to, to some, some degree. I think later on, like as they start talking about it, you kind of get used to those terms. I guess, what do you guys think of that kind of style of just kind of throwing it into the world and like letting the reader figure it out? I think it's like a necessary evil. So there's some amount of restructuring or structuring of this story to make it introductory in nature. I think the choice of Rosemary, somebody who lives a more traditional life, she's from Mars, where people savagely still eat beef instead of bugs uh, and stuff like that, right? That's somebody we're supposed to relate to and doesn't understand how wormholes work and things like that. She softened the blow of landing in her constructed world that way. But then to build up the atmosphere, you'd have to go really slowly if Rosemary encountered each new concept one at a time. And, and you might not get to the plot very quickly if you know they had to explain each thing. I mean, I've read a fair amount of sci-fi novels and fantasy novels and all that kind of have this level of trusting the reader to kind of pick up what world building they're, you know, um, setting. And I mean, just overall impressions of like these first seven chapters. I mean, I think this actually does a pretty good job of, you know, like a lot of world and character building and kind of like slice of life stuff, you know, like without being like too overwhelming to me, seven relatively short chapters. I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. I think we picked something that is kind of a good contrast of the last book. It's uh, about as different in tone and like sort of character building. And like, as far as like the sci-fi concepts that it's kind of concerned with, like, you know, this isn't like hard, hard sci-fi in that it cares about how necessarily the hard science of like how these wormholes, but more like the sort of society that comes after, like, that's just kind of how it seems like. Um, yeah. Yeah. Same. I thought the same thing in contrast to Three Body Problem as well. It, it, it seemed, again, I don't read nearly as much fiction or science fiction as, as you three. It seemed like an easier read, like it seemed uh, less less sciencey. And, and I don't mean to say it's it's better or worse than Three Body Problem. It's just the tone. You're right, Tim. The tone is and the approach is very very different from. Yeah, I thought it was well done. I'm going to make a comparison that's going to make it seem worse. <laughs> or, or less less literary but it felt like futurama to me i had the same thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> like like that mix of personalities and that occasional dip into sort of high pop science what you might call like the the wormhole talk there is fiction that i feel is both easy to read and really good like terry pratchett is an example reading his books is like watching a tv show but there's still like a lot of interesting ideas in there and so far, this seems like it's it's trending that way. Yeah, this is very much of a piece with, you know, not just Futurama, but a lot of like sci-fi of the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so. I think even further, it also reminded me of Star Wars, like this number of characters. Well, personally, yeah, this reminded me a bit of like Firefly, if you've ever seen, you know, Firefly or over, even like Bioware's Mass Effect games, if that's sci-fi universe. Again, I think this does a pretty good job. I generally don't like this 
found family genre kind of thing where it's a bunch of you know, a ragtag group comes together and they have some goal to achieve. As we were talking about it, I realized that Star Wars is one, Futurama is one. I, as, as I started reading it, I was kind of dreading that, but I am, again, I think so far it's been it's been well done. And I think I can see where some of the emotional paths are going to go for the book, yeah. what what some of those um, storylines are going to be. But again, it's, it's, it's well done enough to, to keep my interest so far. Yeah, what what was worrying to me was like not necessarily the found family format, but there's definitely a use of archetypes here, right? Roseberry is one obvious archetype. Like Sissix is this confident, cool guy. Kizzy is, you know, a wacky. What are they called? Manic pixie, dream girl type. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought about her. Yeah, just a real wacky thing. And, and you know, like like everybody else, I didn't mind it. I had fun reading it. Can you imagine not using? archetypes and like how that would end up if the story like avoided that entirely do you end up with a non-found family kind of situation where do you force yourself to write about six creatures that are exactly the same or is there an example of some sort of story you know either in sci-fi or fantasy where you have a group and you avoid archetypes this is basically a workplace book there's a book master and commander that Patrick O'Brien wrote, um, I don't know, in the 60s, probably. And I thought that did a really good job of, you had your your characters and they were well-grounded, but it didn't devolve into, again, I'm not saying this book is going that way, but sitcom territory with the whole found family, like The Office or Friends or any of those kinds of storylines. So I, I thought Master and Commander did a, a really good job of showing a bunch of people in, quote-unquote, the workplace all working towards a common goal, but it not being as stereotypical as, as a lot of the other. It felt fresh. It felt yeah. I, I think it depends on the population, you know, with Master and Commander, that's, you know, 18th or 19th century, like British nautical stuff. So you're, you're intrinsically dealing with a group of people like on a ship or all from the same nationality, background, humans. So in order to differentiate them and, you know, you, know, you can kind of dig a little deeper. Yeah. Right. It, it would be hard to say this is what the Andrisks are really usually like stereotypically, but Sussex is like this. <laughs> and that would be, yeah. yeah, a pretty hard squeeze. So maybe that's that's why this happens so often. It's a good explanation. Again, this feels like a lot of like recent sci-fi. Like if again, like so this book and a lot of other books, one of the things they don't delve into really is competence at the job. So even Corbin, who is supposed to be stuck up and whatever. They make a point of saying that he's he's really good at his job. And part of what I didn't quite get is if he's so good at his job, why wouldn't he go to another ship? Like, why is this the only place where he can he can find a job? Or is there something else behind his story? But, but I do think they all stick together because everyone is amazingly really good at their job. And again, all of us having worked in the workplace know that's not always the case. I actually think they might not all be. I mean, being good at their job, is probably means being good enough at their job. Like I, I could imagine there are better LGS than Corbin, but maybe they're working like the big jobs. Uh, I, I think he might not be the best. He just is. I don't know if you ever worked in a situation he's, with he's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever worked with somebody like that? Like I have. And, and sometimes, sometimes those guys are not the best. <laughs> they're just there. They're available and they do something that either people don't want to do or, or sometimes, you know, that are, they're, they're not allowed to do, you know, like there's some workplaces that were, if you guys remember software certifications, right, you know, they only want to hire somebody who's 
Microsoft Certified System Administrator or something like that, right? It could be something like that. Uh, but but even if it's if it's not that, this doesn't seem like the top random what's it called blind punching ship there is right that's why there's there's room for growth and and maybe they don't pay that much (laughs) you know maybe they're new to it or not you know like experienced it you know in it or not very good at it yet especially when you kind of have the the sapient race that it kind of you know kind of can think in like four dimensions or whatever or like actually like can intuitively understand the subspace like why not just a ship full of those guys you know that's probably the the top tier yeah, I, I think they're called the Hermogians, I think. And they were, I think the the bit of history that she dropped in is they welcomed the refugees, the, the Exodons, the, the humans, into their part of space. And they taught them things. So it seems like there's there's already a little bit of a hierarchy there. Those are the, the, the cool guys who make the really cool wormholes and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be a l- little bit sad if there's a part where, you know, somebody they don't know did something um that there's like an act of betrayal and then everybody suspects Corbin and then it wasn't Corbin. <laughs> the the uh Professor Snape kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the interesting thing about that personality type is um I don't think that arrogance necessarily comes from being good at your job. I think it comes from being able to do the job and being treated as if you are good at the job. That may seem like like a, a really fine distinction. But yeah, again, he might not be the best algiest. He might be the only algiest who, who will might, be paid, he might feel like his... I know, 100,000 credits per year or whatever they have for him. I think he was cantankerous. And I, I think he was territorial. I definitely caught arrogance because it's like, well, why are we bringing this new person? Oh, yeah. That is sort of interesting that he goes beyond like stay away from my algae into why are you here? (laughs) Why are you hiring somebody to do work that I I wasn't even interested in doing myself anyway? Yeah. He's also a a space racist. Is he? Oh, he (laughs) is. Right. No, you you called called the other person a lizard. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's not cool. I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he develops. I, you know, yeah. that that would be very interesting. Like, like, oh, you know, I may know a lot about algae, but uh, <laughs> there's there's other things I don't know. You taught me a lot about love. Yeah, you taught me about love. <laughs> AI. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, him, him and him and Jenks get, the, get in a fight about who's, who's gonna who's gonna date the AI. So I, I think an interesting thing about that is besides the falling in love with the AI thing is. This is a future where, you know, this is the kind of thing like that Google pushes for, where there's 100% acceptance that the AI is going to listen to every and and watch every single thing that happens on the ship. So yeah. they're, they're like a literal panopticon and they're just like, well, that's fine. Um, yeah, it's just, that's just a thing. Yeah, that's just <laughs> how it is at that point in time. I think there's some some part where they mentioned that their behavior is modified as a result of that. And those those conversations between Lovey and Jenks also reminded me of that movie Her that was came out yeah, yeah. a few years ago, and that was very much about falling in love with AI and how it changes people. But I'm assuming that's not the direction in which this book is going to take us. Was that movie good? I saw the commercial and thought I could tell what this movie is going to be, and then I didn't see it. But you can tell what it's going to be, but it's well done. So okay, it's... yeah, yeah, it's worth watching. I think Jenks is also an interesting character. 
or it's an interesting choice about his character that he is he's basically a dwarf. He's a Tyrion Lannister kind of dwarf where there's not a race of dwarfs. He's just, you know, a short man. I, I wonder why she, she went with, uh, maybe to make him, to give him some sort of disadvantage so that he is more empathetic to like underdogs and things like that. That's my question. I don't know if it is because they said he, you know, he's had the gene tweaks or whatever and all that. I'm not sure if it might be a choice or if like it might be something like as far as like being, it seems like he's grown up in space or, you know, a very different, you know. He said specifically so. he didn't though. Yeah. In that chapter yeah. Where he's talking to the AI. He's like, yeah, he's, he's like, why would oh, I choose to be okay. short? Because well, I know all the other, he, the other parts. He, he oh, says he, is that what he, he says? He says he chose, yeah, specifically not to take a gene tweak to make him quote normal height. So. Uh, even though I said quote, <laughs> right. okay, so he was okay, so he was born with a, he does have a yeah. sort of dwarfism to him, okay, or if yeah, I really like the part about how they talked about the disaster of the Kashmet expanse, yeah, uh, where they talk about like that that whole system just being like ripped apart <laughs> by space. Like I thought that part was really interesting. I don't know if they're gonna delve more into it and like talk more about it, but maybe it's okay. Maybe it's just like it's the thing that happened. Yeah, it's obviously the thing that established the regulations or the reason for the regulations yeah, and the way yeah. things work. In stories, when they describe those kinds of things, it's also to let the reader know this is the danger if they mess up. So. Yeah. I think that's showing us, well, this is how it's supposed to happen, and then this is what happens when yeah. it doesn't maybe, go right. Maybe, uh, maybe Rosemary's family caused it. Maybe that's the big secret. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that was actually a Hermogian thing with no humans involved, if, if I read that correctly. So, so they say. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, because because you could go through space-time, they could have done it. They could have yeah. gone back in the... And that's the interesting question that I wonder if they'll get into about... What was it called, Dan? The Expanse That's Bad? Kajmet expanse. Oh, the Kajmet. Yeah. yeah. So if you've messed that up in four dimensions, wouldn't that mean like pieces of the Kajmet expanse would appear earlier and before that event happened? So there'd just be like messed up stuff happening like I don't know, millions or hundreds or thousands of years before that event and also after. And you'd just be like, what is this? And it'd be like, yeah, yeah it would be, it'd be pretty hard to trace and and I think they do mention when they're talking, like Kizzy is explaining the whole punching thing. If you don't do it right, you can end up in the future or the past. Yeah, because like yeah, even when they when they do the punch, like they're like, oh, we ended up at the right place at the right time. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, I don't necessarily think that you need to depict this part in like a really realistic fashion for this to be a good story. But when they're going through the subsurface, they are outside of the space time manifold. So I think she wrote the dialogue so that it repeated a bunch of times. It's just interesting, like maybe they'll do a future one where like the, the sequence of events is written in a different order. Like the end happens, then the start happens, then the middle happens or something, and then it's over. That's actually extremely difficult for a human mind to figure out what things will be like outside of time. And a book is a format that basically goes in linear time, goes from like, the start to the end. I mean, they're, they're skipping around and stuff like that. But yeah, that's that's a very hard thing to kind of depict. Yeah. I wonder if it'll get, like, get even weirder somehow after a while. <laughs> I wonder how, because they're so out of it, the CNAT pairs, how do they defend themselves? There's a whole planet full of these guys that seem really spacey and are like, thinking really deep thoughts. You know, maybe they've built robots or, or something to prevent like whatever the Amazon of that time 
is from like mm -hmm. coming in and harvesting their brains and viruses and just building like cloud computing centers out of it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think of them as like out of it. It just seems like they're like out of sync with like, you know, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, the other races or something. Yeah, just, they, they're just because sort of they like, think yeah, in four dimensions and stuff, there's a lot more for them to think about and they're not like aware. They, well, you know, I could be wrong. But it might not be the whole race either, right? Yeah. It, could, like, it seemed like a choice to take that virus to kind of pair with it. So it might be like, not everyone has the opportunity. It's sort of like in Star Trek, they have the the trill, you know, who like have like the symbiont in them. Uh, so maybe it's something like that, where like only like the more most elevated members of the society are able to take that virus and kind of take on like the four-dimensional thinking. Oh, yeah. yeah. That could be it. Yeah, the Star Wars, uh, or sorry, not Star Wars, Star Trek thing. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> nerds <laughs> the, the, um, the, it does remind me that, like all this wormhole stuff i do wonder if eventually they will have some kind of consequence if they could barely barely conceive of how to punch these wormholes i can't imagine they're also going to figure out all the consequences of punching these wormholes and i think there was a star trek episode where they're like oh all our warping has somehow messed up space we... Well, I mean, yeah, we already saw that with the whole disaster yeah. thing, you know, so it's like they've already yeah. gone through that in some fashion, which is, I think, like why they kind of have all these regulations. Yeah, the, the pinhole tug was like a super regulated thing. You had to get some government body to approve it. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, in Star Trek, there's plenty of regulation, right? That was like uh, one of the things they didn't, in some episode of, I don't know, Next Generation or something, didn't they figure out like, oh, Going beyond beyond some speed, warp five or something, is destroying our universe, so we have to stop it. Even though we regulated it, and we just couldn't predict that this would happen. It sounds familiar. I, I, um, think, I, don't, I don't remember specifically. Yeah, well, whether or not that really happened in Star Trek or not, I do wonder if there is you know, some later price for this incredible convenience. I mean, it seems more commonplace than anything, but yeah, maybe people aren't taking the broader view of all the implications. I do like, though, that putting safety aside, that they're literally punching random holes in space. Yeah. Just like, wherever we come out, that's that's where we'll be. And then yeah. we'll be able to get there easily. I, I like the point they made about FTL travel being banned. I've never seen like a kind of like address that as like, well, this just kind of like messes with people like so, you know, so badly that we're just going to pretty much just ban it. And even though they have the ability to do FTL travel. I have seen it in other things. Well, I'm not going to, yeah. Oh, in the, yeah. In the Remembers of First Past series, it's it's a thing, but I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> yeah. But also in Star Trek. Star Trek, too. yeah, Star Trek, uh, yeah. Well, not, not banning FTL, but banning, like, a certain speed. That is the thing I remember. Right. Yeah, I mean, like the light speed is just like warp one right yeah. in star trek so like they're always going like warp 9.9.5 or 9.6 or whatever yeah. so that's yeah i think that was disallowed at some point i remember in star trek they get authorized to use you know some higher warp level so i think it does have some ill effects on on space time but you know space is so big it's like whatever also in, in space time it's even bigger yeah uh, yeah, so speak, speaking of kind of these references, some of the other references that I, I got, they, they talk about, about like the Aldi drives, and that, that seems to be powering the ships. Uh, in Star Trek Discovery, they actually use a spore drive, so that kind of reminded me of that. Another thing I caught in is like one of the foods that they use called Red Coast Bugs. I don't know if that's an allusion to uh, Red Coast Base. Oh, yeah. I've, I've caught my, my eye. And then, of course, all the Futurama stuff, you know, uh, Futurama, Star Trek, Star Wars. Yeah, kind of like coming together, the crew it seems very 
sci-fi, you know, popular sci-fi trope of the alien races coming together. Yeah, it feels like this was made with high-quality off-the-shelf parts in a way. Yeah. You know, it's just like, I only care about being an author and writing a story. <laughs> I don't really want to come up with the wormhole thing myself and, and all that. Yeah, very much different from, from the Remembers of Earth Past series, like where he's like pulling like really, and then he's, he's also pulling from some scientific concepts that exist, but like at a very higher, more, more tactical level. This is sort of like more like implementation details. Like, oh, you make wormholes. No, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like punch your, punch your space. Yeah, like, like I was saying, like, uh, I don't know, one of those episodes, basically the difference between hard sci-fi and regular sci-fi is just picking the point at which you just start making things up. And like in hard sci-fi, yeah, there's a point at which you start making things up, like the sofans and stuff like that. But but it, it takes a long while. Whereas right here, it's pretty early. You can make wormholes. We're not going to really question it. We're, we're just going to say there's a scientific basis to space-time being like a manifold. So theoretically, there are places where it can be close together, and you can punch through it in like a higher dimension. Yeah, yeah, that's not really what it's about, which is which is fine, I think. Yeah, it's a lot more about like the interaction of the crew than the actual science. Although the science kind of colors their jobs, right? And I think as a sci-fi reader, you'll be more interested that you're that they're in space and like they're talking about wormholes and stuff. It kind of like piques your interest. But then like the real meat of the story is around, I think, going to be around the character interaction. If I if I'm assuming correctly, for me, these stories come off if they establish some rules and they stick to them, even if the rules aren't super scientific, right? And I think that's what she's trying to do here. So, like, there's, like, a limit to AI, right? AI only can do, which which makes sense, like, can only do what people do just at scale. It uh, also cannot do paperwork. But it's also interesting that she's set kind of a digital technology limit. Because the way you would always imagine this stuff happening is this entire crew would be robots. You'd just be like, all right, just send this cluster off. And they will do, you know, if you have to have the Sienna pair, you have him in there. You have as as little organic stuff in there as possible, and everything else is automated. So that guy does the calculations. The algae is maintained by various monitors and some sort of computing cluster on the ship, or, or maybe even not even on the ship. And that's how it would be done. Of course, that might not be that fun of a story. Yeah, you <laughs> right. At some point, yeah, they want to tell a, an adventure story or something with relatable characters. So, so what do you think of the pacing here of this story? Like, kind of slow, kind of fast. I think it was pretty fat. Like I said at the kind of at the beginning, I think it did a pretty good job of like you get a lot of world building and a lot of character establishment in a pretty short time. So I think like I don't know. I mean, it made good use of the word count up to this point to like establish the universe and the characters and story. I mean, knowing that this is a series, is this book just like the first chapter in a long story, or does it have an arc unto itself? Yeah, how many books are there? There's like four or five. Uh, I think there's only two. No, there's definitely. Oh, there's at least three. Oh, there's three. Now, okay. Apparently, no one actually knows. <laughs> <laughs> By the time you get the three guesses, yeah. I thought the pacing was good. I, I was a little surprised that it took him seven chapters to get to like the actual, I don't know, an action or a set piece or whatever you want to call it. It was just a lot of meeting people for a while because usually these kinds of books, there's something exciting happens at the beginning and then then you're brought into the world. But this was just. We're going to walk around and meet everyone for six chapters and then 
and then we're gonna do some cool space stuff. I, I think that's a that shows a lot of author confidence. Yeah, because you're you're right. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, a lot of a lot of sci-fi stories, or uh, this is again me imagining what the sci-fi author is thinking, but does start with the punch or the big thing because they're they're afraid that if they just talk about the various characters and stuff that people will just run away because it's not exciting enough. That kind of shows what her her main purpose is too, right? Like the main purpose is about the character interaction, not about the science. The science is just like sort of like the setting for the characters. Yeah, it's just like an exotic, different, you know, otherworldly situation. Yeah, I just checked. There's four books. Okay. Expected public. It's not out yet. It's like expected to come out this year or something. But But yeah, given that didn't start with a stinger, you know, sort of like a plot stinger or like big event, like might indicate that this is like a might span multiple volumes or so, like the actual story. I wonder like how much like they focus on the same crew for the entire series. Is it really like this crew, you know, like a Star Trek series, right? Like it's always like it's more or less the same people going forward. So I wonder if like that, that's like kind of that group's adventures and whatever their universe is. Yeah. So the other question I had was, if you had to speculate, which, if any of these characters are the red shirt, if something bad is going to happen to the crew, who's going to be the first person to die or whatever the equivalent of die is, be expelled or well, something like that? Ohan has the least personality, <laughs> so uh, or or the least understandable. And he's the most, he's the most integral to the to the ship's operation, right? So yeah. like that might be yeah. interesting if he if he died or went away or whatever. Like, and the crew had to. They, they somehow have to do yeah, it without yeah. without Ohan. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you never know. Yeah, I would bet that, you know, there's no abrupt shift to another crew or something like that. But yeah, I mean, books do sometimes do that. Be like, oh, reading about these guys. And then like, you know, 100 pages in. Oh, guess what? It's this other guy. Not Solid Snake. <laughs> Whatever. Just talk about him. <laughs> Maybe we have to infer from the title. It's like they have to get to this planet, this small, angry planet, and they were going to take the quick way, but Ohan gets, you know, yes. spaced or something, and they have to take Man, the long that'd be, way. It would be a big tonal shift. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of, yeah, it turns into an old man in the sea kind of thing, where it's just like, well, once again, they held on, and uh, they kept going, and they thought about their lives back on back on Mars and stuff like that. So what are your overall thoughts, everyone? So overall, I was weary going into this about the whole found family plot line, but so far it's well done. And I think the science part of the science fiction really hasn't come in yet, but I'm enjoying it and I'm excited to see what happens next. Yeah, I, I think it was, it was really interesting, you know, as a contrast to like the three body problem, like it kind of skips the big ideas, but it has what I think is a really skillful writer. And it's interesting to see how much you could get out of a skillful writer. Yeah, I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. Like, I think it does a lot of good world building up to this point, like world and character building. And like, I tend to like slice of life stuff in my sci-fi and fantasy stories, you know, not necessarily just like main plot, main plot, main plot, you know, gung-ho. So, I mean, not to the point where like George R. R. Martin is describing like every food dish <laughs> on the table, but I think pretty much any other media that I, you know, books or or TV shows or yeah, you know, anything that has like a lot of stuff kind of up front thrown at you, a lot of characters, a lot of terminology. Like initially, I was like feeling kind of overwhelmed and like 
kind of fatigued, I guess, with so much information. But I think as you keep reading, because it's written well, kind of blends itself into the into the world and you kind of get to know without having to really like analyze every like technology or person. You get to know the people. So yeah, I think hopefully it's not a straight kind of by the numbers thing like we talked about where like this ragtag crew is able to overcome the odds and, you know, perform their big job. Like hopefully there's like a bit more intricacy to it. I'm okay with the level of science and like that science is not really at the forefront of the story that's the characters, but yeah, hopefully it's just not like, it's not very by the numbers. And combining what you and Jim said in science fiction, I agree. I think there's a lot of terminology and things. So in three body problem, I remember that Dan and Jim would go and like look up things and, and do additional research. My feeling on those things usually is that if I'm a little confused, that's fine. Cause that's what the author intends me to be. And he or she will correct it in the future. And that's kind of how I feel about this. So some of the terms, I probably don't fully grasp them right now, but I'm also confident that the author knows what she's doing and it'll all make sense when it needs to make sense. Yeah, Rosemary's kind of the audience insert, I think, and you're supposed to be kind of like in her head or something like that. And it's kind of, you're supposed to have these things kind of thrown at you and, you know. One example I can think of specifically is like there's talking about like how uh, Sussex uh, stole that guy's dent pods, and I was like, "What the hell's a dent?" Like, I, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, it's a it's a dent. It's like for brushing your teeth." <laughs> I, originally, I was thinking it was like they're fixing dents on the uh, on the ship or something, and I was like, "Why the hell does he care?" Oh, dent. Pod. Okay, I get it. <laughs> so it's like the equivalent to some, stealing someone's toothpaste, right, or toothbrush. Okay, I don't want to introduce another thing when we're doing final thoughts, but I also think it's an interesting line drawn around the limits of technology. Like you still have to brush your teeth, but again, you can create a wormhole, you know, <laughs> that's like, uh, so this uneven development, which, which I guess is uh, semi-natural, but like we talked about before, like, and I, I'm okay with it. It's incredibly unlikely that this wouldn't be done entirely automated, except with, you know, the CNN pair, I think, but, you know, it would be actually very interesting if there's even though this is not that kind of book, there's an explanation for that kind of uneven technology development. Sort of like the Star Wars thing where, you know, they have X-Wings that can go at light speed, but they have the little grid computer analog targeting <laughs> thing, which is, which is actually very charming, but yeah. All of our sci-fi, even current sci-fi, is going to become retro-futuristic sci-fi at some point. And people are going to appreciate that for, for that in the future because, you know, same way people like Blade Runner now, because it's like it's got this. Yeah, it's got yeah, it's got a style. I mean, to to like stretch it, like the the way pixel art holds up, like Castlevania for the Nintendo Entertainment System still looks good. Is yeah, it's got some style. So I think that's pretty interesting. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail dot com or on Twitter at rehydrate pod. Please join us next time for episode two. The job where we will be reading chapters 8 through 10 of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. <laughs>